0: I have the privilege to turn to God's Word. I'd invite you to turn in a Bible to Philippians chapter 4. It's printed for you on your bulletin on page 7. You can also turn in a copy of God's Word that's provided for you in the pew, or if you brought your own. Again, we're in Philippians chapter 4. This morning, we are continuing our journey through Paul's letter, we find ourselves in part nine, but the fourth chapter uh, of this great letter. So again, Philippians four verses one through nine. And it says this: "Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat. Sentoky, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. And the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Much like you can uh, look at a a map on your phone these days or a map, you know, on your GPS in the car or perhaps if you're still someone who uses a paper map, okay, a AAA map, that would also work. Uh, But much like you can look at a map uh, and realize exactly where you are on a journey, you can find uh, you know, where you are, uh, how far you've progressed, you know, where the starting point was, where the, where the finishing point is, your relation to those things. The same is true in a sense of, of Paul's letters. That it's important at times, especially when you find yourself in the midst of a series like this that has multiple parts, it's important at time to, to look up and see where you are in relation to the larger letter and to see where you are in relation to the larger theological journey uh, that Paul is taking his congregants or the hearers of this letter on. To so again, kind of find your bearings on that theological or that, that, that letter map. And again, find out where you are. Because you've heard me say before that Paul's letters always, and almost without exclusion, always tend to follow a certain pattern. A pattern. He takes us on a journey. That Paul will typically open his letters with these grand and glorious reminders of grace. These, these grand and glorious reminders of the salvation that we've been gifted freely without any deserving the the entire just gracious offering, gracious gifting of salvation through Christ. In other words, Paul opens the letter speaking almost exclusively in the beginning of what God alone has accomplished for us, what God alone has done on our behalf. And Paul does this, you've heard me say, um, as a way to often recalibrate those who are hearing the letter. To recalibrate them, typically, away from religion and ritual. That again, almost all the churches he ministers to or ministers in, once he leaves, once he departs, tend to drift into some other uh, thing. Or they're tempted to add something to the gospel. Again, it's usually religious in nature or it's ritualistic in nature. Again, the most common example we see you know, is in like the Galatian letter, we see it even a little bit here where uh, the congregation is tempted to add, you know, Jewish custom or, or Jewish ritual to the, the salvation of God in Christ alone, whether it's through circumcision, whether it's through dietary laws, there's something they want to add to the gospel, they want to add to the gift. And so Paul will always open his letters recalibrating them, speaking entirely of what God first has done for us apart from any effort or anything we can do. The example I've used, if you remember, is uh, my, my children love to play the Nintendo Wii. W-I-I, the Nintendo Wii, which is this like, interactive gaming system where you know, if you're playing tennis, let's say, you don't just like, press a button to, to have a forehand, but you actually hold the remote and you swing it like a tennis racket. Uh, and it's interactive, and it's got a Bluetooth, and it picks up your motion, you know. And of course, if you let go of the remote and it hits the TV, that's no good. All right, so you've got to be careful. It comes with a sling that you attach to your wrist. But you can actually, like, hit a tennis ball or, you know, or spike a volleyball in the sports games. And it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a great system. You can actually get sweaty playing video games, which is weird. But it happens, okay? Well, the Nintendo Wii, though, has a remote where it has to always recalibrate. Because it's motion-activated, you have to sit it down every, like, ten minutes. It's really annoying. You have to sit it down on a flat surface, and it recalibrates between the sensor and the remote, and then you can keep playing. But if you don't recalibrate, you know, you, you hit a forehand, and it goes that way, you know, or it goes that way, and it needs to, again, be reset. That's what Paul here is doing in his letters. He is recalibrating us to the grace of God. He speaks always in the beginning of his letters of the indicatives of the gospel, if you will, to use like a literary, you know, grammatic term. He's indicating, the indicatives, he's indicating what has already been done for you in Christ. But then what happens as Paul then recalibrates his audience. He speaks then, always as his letters progress, he speaks of how this grace that has been given to us freely does though begin to work in us. And it does begin to to transform us. It begins to flow from us. It begins to evidence itself within us and our lives and our new way of living. And so Paul then moves from what we call the indicatives of the gospel to now the imperatives of the gospel. What God has done, what he has indicated is now true about you, to now the imperatives of the gospel or what now we are supposed to do the things now we are called to do, the people we are called to be out of that grace. How that grace, again, that saving grace works through us, how we live in light of that grace. And so in other words, Paul will move from the glorious gift of justification to now the glorious growing of sanctification. The glorious gift of justification to now the glorious growing, the new life of Sanctification, And so we find ourselves in really that second half of the journey in the letter. That again, if you were to look back in Philippians, Paul in chapter 1 exalts Christ and his grace alone. He thanks God for the Philippians' grip on the gospel. He magnifies the advance of the gospel. If you remember in chapter 2, we have that great, powerful, you know, praiseworthy hymn from Paul as he extols the beauty of Christ, the humility of Christ. But then in chapter 3, we begin to see Paul sort of turn, if you will. And he gives those autobiographical remarks of how when he has found the grace of Christ, or a better way to say it is when the, the grace of Christ found him, uh, Paul now despairs of his own resume. He doesn't look to his own spirituality, he despairs of his own resume he doesn't seek to earn god's favor anymore but he basks in the favor he's been been given and then here in chapter 4 he then begins to the talk of this new kind of striving we're called for called to we no longer strive to earn god's favor that's been gifted but now we strive to reflect that favor to reflect that gift. Again, the, the image I, I've given before, which I think is helpful, is that if you take that, that, that statement that you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, if you take that statement literally for a moment and think of yourself being clothed in a, in a robe, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but at first that robe is baggy, right? It doesn't fit. It doesn't necessarily match our, our current way of life. But what happens, Paul tells us in Ephesians that we begin to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We begin to reflect more and more that righteousness, that new nature we've been given, and that robe over time. Again, it's always a gift. We never earn it. But the fit becomes a little more snug, right? The life matches now the profession a little more. Think of my son Wyatt, I said. He puts on my blazer after church and he looks ridiculous running around stage, right, But over time he grows up in every way into him who is the head, uh, which is Christ. And so again, that's what Paul is getting at here. And so as he speaks here in chapter four, the growing up in Christ, this sanctification in Christ, you notice in, in verse one, he calls us as his redeemed, as the as the Lord's redeemed, as his beloved. He calls us to stand firm. To stand firm. And we stand firm in our confession by basically realizing uh, three things in these verses. There's three realities about the gospel that Paul puts on display here, and there's three realities that we're called to tighten our grip on again in the gospel. And the, and the three three realities are this: the first one is there's the reality that we have a unity in the gospel. That is greater than our differences. We have a unity in the gospel greater than our differences. The second thing is that we have the reality of a joy in the gospel greater than our circumstances. A joy in the gospel greater than our circumstances. And then, thirdly, there's the reality of a peace in the gospel greater than our understanding. A unity greater than our differences. A joy greater than our circumstances and a peace greater than our understanding. So let's consider those in the time we have left. A unity in the gospel. A unity in the gospel. How uh, many of you know that I'm a big Miami Marlins fan. And, you know, I feel like I mention it every sermon. I apologize. I only have so many illustrations. Um, but I'm a big Miami Marlins fan. You're know, A big baseball fan uh, in general. And if you happen to be one of those few remaining fans uh, along with me, one of those poor, long-suffering souls, then uh, you may watch local Marlins broadcasts, and perhaps at one time uh, you notice. well, I don't think it's likely, that my son, Wyatt, uh, was actually on a Marlins commercial. And I say it, it's unlikely because it was like in passing. It was like a brief flash. But there was actually a time where on Fox Sports South or whatever it is, um, They'd show Marlins games, and every commercial break, there'd be this Marlins commercial in the stadium, and Wyatt was on it. We just happened to be at the right place, the right time one day, and he was on the camera, and he was a good enough looking kid, I suppose, and he was wearing enough you know, Marlins gear that he made the commercial. So it was pretty cool, because one time we were watching it, and we were floored to see him. We didn't know he was on there. We were floored to see it, and of course, it was like his greatest achievement. You know? uh, his greatest accomplishment was to make it on a Marlins Commercial and to have his his name or his person right uh, immortalized in his mind and in our minds as a part of the Marlins family, the Marlins tradition. He had become immortalized. Right, uh, Wyatt Masterson is now a part of the Marlins story. Well, wouldn't it be cool to even beyond Marlins commercials to have your name immortalized in Scripture? To have your name make Scripture. That's pretty cool, right? To be immortalized in Scripture for all of time, for all of history, your name makes the Scripture. That's pretty cool. Or is it? <laughs> or is it? Depends on the reason, right? Why is your name immortalized in Scripture? Well, if you notice here, again, as we think of unity in the gospel, Two women have their names immortalized in Scripture. Two have their names immortalized. But it seems like it's for the wrong reasons, right? It's been immortalized for uh, less than stellar reasons. What's happening here? They can't get along. They can't get along, right? What does Paul say here? I entreat. It's like a fancy biblical word, right? For beg. (laughs) Beg. I beg, I plead with these two to do what? Put your differences aside. Put your differences aside. We're not given a lot of context here. We're not given the exact reason for their differences. We're not given the nature of their their disagreement. But, But somehow, in some way, the extent of their fracture, the extent of their disunity has risen to to a level, it's risen to a combative enough nature where it's actually jeopardizing the health of the church. It's actually jeopardizing the church's worship and its witness. And when you think of that, though, now the letter makes a lot more sense. Because can you imagine how this works? Remember how this works. When Paul writes his letters, aside from the pastoral letters, which are kind of more personal and directed to one specific individual or maybe a couple these other letters are addressed to congregations as a whole again in philippi there wasn't first pres philippi first baptist philippi you know first holy apostolic you know son of mary church in philippi right there was just the church of philippi and so when paul writes these are congregational letters which are supposed to be read aloud probably read in one sitting Okay? And so, as Paul now has been speaking all throughout the letter of unity, of humility in Christ, <laughs> of the Godhead's example of both humility and unity, that all sounds great and it sounds theological and it sounds, you know, uh, ethereal and a, a good idea, but now he makes it personal. <laughs> and can you imagine as this, as this letter is being read, you're falling asleep. You know, it's been a long sermon. You're starting to doze off, and all of a sudden you hear a name. You hear a name being called. I don't usually name people in my sermons, okay? Don't worry. Don't get nervous. All right. But all of a sudden you hear your name read and you and you come to. You see, Paul here again is calling these two out and saying their level of discord, their level of disagreement again, rose to such a level that it was actually worthy of being mentioned in his congregational, uh, inspired, preserved later in Scripture letter. And if you notice, he's not condemning them. He calls them co-laborers, true companions. He even says, which I love, that their name is written in the book of life. So these are not, you know, bad apples. These are not enemies of Paul, enemies of Christ. These are, you know, uh, genuine believers, genuine co-laborers whose names are written even more importantly than Paul's letter. They're written in the book of life. So he's not condemning them, but what is he doing? He's calling them back to their true identity. He's calling them back to their true Identity. And he's saying, basically, you're not acting like the gospel call you've been given. Your testimony isn't matching up your profession. You're beginning to act again like the world. You're beginning to act again like what you've been called from. He's calling them back to their true identity in Christ. That's what sanctification looks like. Again, becoming who we really are meant to be. Becoming our true selves. He's calling them back to their true identity in Christ. And he's pleading with them, and he does the same to us this morning. In any church, he does the same for us this morning. To remember that we will always have differences. (laughs) In a church of any size, in a church at any place, there will always be lesser differences. We will always have various perspectives. We will always have differences of opinion on anything. On anything, right? On the service time, on the translation of the Bible we should you know, um, be reading from, on um, pastoral attire or, or uh, style of music, right? Or, or Lord willing, as you know, we're going to be working on the fellowship hall this year and doing some refreshment and some renovation. And I guarantee you, if we took a poll, we're going to have 65 different opinions on what color the floor should be, right? And that's okay. It's okay. Uh, but again, there's going to be differences of perspectives, differences of opinions. You know, if, if we put some work into the sanctuary one day, and uh, you know, there'll be differences in the, in the color of the carpet if we change it, maybe. We're not, don't worry. But we might. Um, there's going to be differences of opinion, right? Always, lesser things, disagreements. That's okay. It's part of being a family. But Paul here wants us to, to know that, again, whatever lesser differences we may have, They can never supersede or never overcome the greater unity we have in the gospel. The greater unity we have, the greater commonality we have as sinners. Sinners saved by grace, sinners saved by the same and only Savior, which is Christ Jesus. So again, he's calling us to remember that in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our disagreements, there is a greater gospel Unity, always. Secondly, as he continues into verses 4 and 6, there's the reality of a joy greater than our circumstances. So again, if there is a unity greater than our differences, there's a joy greater than our circumstances. Now these verses, again, look in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. These verses can often be misinterpreted or misapplied. You know, Paul isn't calling the Philippian Christians, he's not calling us as 21st century uh, American Christians, to never show sadness, to never, to never show grief. He's not calling us to, to never voice complaint or doubt or discouragement. He's not even saying that we can't at times have you know, joy stolen from us, that we can't have it diminished, that there aren't, there aren't things in our lives that will, that will cause true grief. You know, we're not called as Christians to be, you know, uh, perma-smile, you know, plastic, phony people. We're not called to be that. You know, Paul's not saying here that, again, there's never sources of grief in our life. If you're ever told that by the church, or if you're ever told that by a brother or sister, they clearly haven't read the Psalms. They haven't read Lamentation. They haven't read those visceral outcries to the Lord when life doesn't make sense, when tragedy strikes, when, when life gets hard, when life gets difficult. Again, Paul isn't calling us to never have grief, to never have sadness. But what is he doing here? He's saying that again, just as you're going to have differences, but there's a greater unity, you're going to have trials in life. You're going to have grief in life. You live in a broken world. I live in a broken world. We're always subject to trials and burdens, to heartache, to discouragement, to despair at times. But in the midst of that, in the midst of those things, there's a fixed, immovable, greater joy. There's a true north, isn't there? That again, is a true source of joy, an immovable and fixed source of joy that nothing in life can ultimately diminish or take away. There's an evergreen source of joy. And we know that to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the source of fixed goodness and grace, the source of fixed joy, is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's why Paul can say here, rejoice in your career always, no, it's impossible. Rejoice in your health, always? No, oh, it's impossible. Rejoice in your bank account, in success, always. Again, I will say, no, it's impossible. Rejoice in the Lord. Always remember the goodness of His gospel and grace can overcome and be with us in the laments and the low places. In life. What does Christ Himself say? In this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. What does Paul say elsewhere? Romans 8? For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a powerful reminder. And then notice how Paul continues and he points out then what happens. When this perspective on joy in the Christian life takes root, it has this way of giving us actually this very powerful witness, if you notice here. And that powerful witness comes in the fact that when trial strikes, when, when difficulty strikes, we're actually people known for our reasonableness. Or another way to translate it, your Bible might say, we're known for our gentleness, our gentleness. We're known for our gentleness. And how does that work? How it works is that when the storms of life come, yes, we feel them. Yes, we feel pain. Yes, we feel difficulty, but they don't overwhelm us. They don't completely throw us off. They don't ultimately lead us to just crippling anxiety or despair or worry and we and thinking that all is helpless. And lost, but what does it actually drive us to do? To pray. To pray. To pray to the one who is immovable. To pray to the one who is our fixed source of joy. To cast all of our cares, here it says, to to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition to present our request to that God, to that immovable source of joy. And there's this gentleness, there's this reasonableness that then settles over us. And again, that becomes a great witness for us. That becomes a great otherworldly marker of our lives that that gets the world's attention. Because we're fixed, we're immovable, we're standing firm, as Paul tells us to do in verse 1. And then lastly and finally, again, a unity in the midst of our differences, a joy in the midst of our circumstances. And then thirdly and finally, all this then leads us to then have a peace, that goes beyond our understanding. A peace greater than our understanding. If you think about it, the 1960s, uh, the 1960s, right, the world was told uh, that peace along with uh, love and happiness, right, and it was usually in tie-dye also, that those things would come if what happened? Peace would come, love and happiness would come if what happened? Cultural morality is thrown out, right? Uh, cultural norms are done away with, you pursue your pleasure and hedonistic pursuits and peace will come. Did it come? (laughs) No. Is the world any more peaceful now than the decade preceding the 60s? No. Think about uh, beauty pageants, right? It's a weird illustration, but think about like Miss America, Miss Universe, whatever it might be, local beauty pageants, right? What does every, it's always a joke, what does every participant always wish for? I wish for world peace. What would you do if you win? I wish for world peace. But then what happens? Next year's contestant wishes for the same thing, right? I wish for world peace. Why? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen those ways. Uh, if I were to poll the congregation, what is the one thing we all look for uh, as we move through life? Peace and quiet. <laughs> if I could just get a little peace and quiet in this rat race, I'll be happy finally. So we look for better jobs, we look for new locations, we look for new careers. And again, they might help a little bit, but does ultimate peace and quiet ever come? Not in this life. Not in this life. So the question for us as we close is where does true peace come from? Where is true peace found both then in Philippi and the 1960s and now? Where does true peace come from? We're told again by Paul. Only in Christ Jesus. Only in that mind-boggling mystery that goes beyond our understanding, only in that mind-boggling mystery that God loved us so much that he came for us, that he came down for us, that he became one of us, that he would do for us what he could never do for ourselves, that he would live that perfect life, he would die that glorious death, that scandalous death maybe. And he would rise again for our salvation. And he did all those things to do, why? To secure for himself a bride. To secure for himself a people, redeemed. To secure for himself a church. Again, capital C. Which is why then we as the members of that church seek its unity. We preserve its unity. This is the bride of Christ. We are called to hold it together. We are called to love and live together. He did those things, why? To secure us an eternal joy that goes beyond our understanding, that goes beyond our circumstances, an eternal joy of knowing that we are his and that he is ours. He did all those things ultimately to give us a peace, a peace in this life, a peace of knowing that we are now in full harmony with God, our sins have been forgiven, we have been made right with God. So because we have peace with God, we can now have peace with ourselves, with our own doubts and anxieties, And we can now also have peace with each other, with the world. We can have peace with our enemy, (laughs) because we were the enemy of God. We can have peace with our brothers and our sisters. And so again, Paul here, again, he encourages us, no matter what life throws at us, that we preserve these things, the unity of the church, the joy of the gospel, and that we remember the peace we now have with God. And these are all things that we'll enjoy fully, finally, forever, or in the presence of God, one day, full unity, full joy, full peace, which passes our understanding. Do you know this Savior this morning? Do you know this Christ Jesus? I pray you do. I pray you know his unity, you know his joy, and you know his peace. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for the gift of your word we thank you, Lord, that again these are words that were written so long ago, so far removed from our context here in Lake Worth, Florida in 2019. And yet though they are far removed, they hit home. They're close. Why? Because we're the same sinners in need of the same savior. And so we thank you, Lord, that these words have been again a fresh encouragement and reminder to us, your people. And we pray, Lord, that we indeed would stand firm, that we would press on, that we would strive for the upward call of Christ Jesus, as Paul reminded us last week. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to know more and more deeply, again, the unity we have in Christ, the joy we have in Christ, the peace we have, all because of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.